0: Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Violet Luca, digital editor. Many filmmakers today straddle the worlds of fine art, documentary, and experimental cinema, pushing the boundaries of nonfiction film to redefine and challenge its form. Now in its third year, Art of the Real, a series co-programmed by Dennis Lim, head of programming at Film Society of Lincoln Center, and Rachel Rakes, programmer at large at Film Society, offers a showcase for nonfiction, narrative, hybrid, and experimental films from around the world that loosely fall under this umbrella. I was joined by Lim, Rakes, and Museum of the Moving Image Associate Director of Programming, Eric Hines, to discuss this year's wide-ranging lineup. The works we discussed in the series include the Bruce Bailey retrospective, Ben Rivers, What Means Something; Mauro Erce's Dead Slow Ahead; Brett Story's The Prison in Twelve Landscapes; Sergio Oxman's Oh Football; Chantal Ackerman's No Home Movie; Ju Anki's Poet on the Business Trip; Andres Duques, Oleg and the Rare Arts; Roberto Minervini's The Other Side; Im Hung Soon's Factory Complex; Tom Anderson's The Thoughts That We Once Had; and Hassan Farani's a roundabout in my head. We go to our conversation now. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. I'm Violet Luca, digital editor, and today I'm joined by... Dennis Lim. Who is?
1: I am the Director of Programming here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center.
2: Eric Hines, Associate Curator of Film at the Museum of the Moving Image, as well as
3: a writer for Film Comment. Rachel Rakes, the Programmer at Large at Film Society.
0: Great. Thank you all for coming today. So we're going to be talking a bit about Art of the Real, which is, th- this is the third year that the Film Society, Dennis and Rachel, have put together a program encompassing hybrid documentaries, documentaries, and for this year, recontextualizing Bruce Bailey's work in a nonfiction context. Can you talk a little bit about what you feel like makes this year's program unique or different or how the series has evolved over the course of the past three years.
3: I think jumping on the the Bruce Bailey bit that you mentioned, um, I think it was maybe similar to showing that Agnes Farda last year was someone who like you know sort of bounces between documentary and fiction this year. Um, we were thinking about someone who you could think about as kind of a, a experimental ethnographic filmmaker, but who's been largely thought of as sort of straight up avant-garde pioneer. So, yeah, we were really interested in in recontextualizing that and, and, like, seeing these through the lens of documentary or ethnography. Um, And the the program that Garbina put together was, you know, sort of, like, was a nice way to set that up.
1: Yeah, I should say the program was organized by Garbina Ortega. It's going to be a touring program. It's kicking off here, but it's going to a few other venues uh, in the U.S. and also internationally. And for us, I think the, the impetus behind Art of the Real was always to expand the field, to expand the definition of documentary. So it did always make sense to put together what we thought were the strongest nonfiction films of the past year that took some risks in terms of exploring formal language, but to also show, as you said, some hybrid films, some fiction films that have strong documentary aspects, to show experimental work um, that has you know documentary component to it. And Bailey seemed like, uh, somebody who is, I think it's a pretty diverse body of work actually, Um, and and I think to sort of emphasize this influence on documentary filmmakers today seemed like something that was um, exciting to us.
0: Well, Rachel, could you sort of talk a little bit about Bailey's work for people who aren't familiar with it? Like I said, it kind of, it goes,
3: all over the place. He started out making on, on the west coast, making these kind of idiosyncratic short 16 millimeter films that were like these kind of like experimental portions of people he knew with different elements cut in. But he's also made some kind of uh, biographical films. One of his best known films is uh, Castro Street. That's sort of like this, you know, experimental experimental city symphony, but then that kind of expands into into the essayistic. As a founder of Canyon Cinema with Six Strand, uh, he was just incredibly intellectual on um, other people who were kind of taking up the camera themselves, at, you know, in the early mid-60s, early 70s, to, yeah, to, to sort of make their own work. And, and also, um, you know, his big thing was not only making their own work, but actually presenting, like, taking taking the reins of, you know, distribution and exhibition. It's also creating an environment to show that and, and having control over that, which I think is really important, too.
1: I think he's also a really influential figure on, I think, some, you know, really key filmmakers, like Api Chapong, who and Ben Rivers, um, people like that. So I think to trace his influence on them, seemed like something that would make sense in the context of this festival. And you know, I think last year, we don't. sometimes we have a, a director retrospective. Like last year, we also had a, a thematic program on, on reenactment, which seemed like something that was irrelevant to the conversation around documentary at the time. And Bruce Bailey is actually going to come, so we're very excited about that. And, and I'm going to you know, pair him up with some hopefully in- interesting scholars, filmmakers, to talk about his work.
0: So you mentioned Ben Rivers, whose film, What Means Something, a portrait of Rose Wiley, the English painter at her home in Kent. Uh, it's one of the opening night films. Can you contextualize Ben Rivers's work? Because his career reflects someone who's straddling the experimental film world and the art world.
1: Yep. And documentary, I think, yeah. in, 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 in many ways. This is, uh, you know, as you said, it's it's a film about Rose Wiley. And I think um, portraiture is sort of something that, that Ben has explored in, in a lot of his Films, I think portraits of solitary figures in many ways. Um, but this also, I think, it's maybe seems to me a little bit less experimental. It does it does uh, than than some of his um, other shorter portrait films. This, I think, does sort of fall within this um, the category of the like art artist, you know, mm-hmm. bio um, documentary. But I think there's something really very special and very tender about the relationship between the filmmaker and the subject in this film uh, that, that really comes across. I think Ben's relationship with Rose Wiley, I think, is, is a big part of this film. Uh, and I think there are these really lovely scenes of her at work, too. I think it's, it's a great portrait of, like, you know, work, what, what, what artistic work yeah. process is.
0: Because it's such a overly romanticized thing in film and yeah. then you actually see in real time an artist creating something and it's yeah. so completely different and it allows not just watching her create it allows her process to breathe and also the piece that she's creating to sort of breathe and come into being and it's fascinating but also I would say it's as mu- it's also a portrait of her home yep. and which is integral to her work mm-hmm. and you know landscape is such or portraits of space or explorations of space are sort of come into the program with things like um, "Dead Slow Ahead" or "The Prison in Twelve Landscapes," which I know Eric, you were taken by.
2: I think that film is I think it's rare, but I, I don't know if that's exactly even what is, is most applicable here, but it, it's a it's a moment when I think that the formal gambit completely there's a great match between the formal gambit and what it's actually communicating, Mm. what the, the subject that's being explored. I think sometimes films can be formally incredibly compelling but maybe the subject seems secondary. Or vice versa I think it's a, it's a mm-hmm. moment where I mean it's a film where, where that really really works out um, and even you, you see the title you see the, the the prison in 12 landscapes you think it's going to be regimented in the idea that there's going to be 12 parts of equal length perhaps and that's actually not the way it is at all it's ragged in a really great way and surprising as a result so you're not actually waiting for the five minute mark say when the next part the next landscape might arrive right. in, in, instead each one of those landscapes has its own shape and its own style sometimes and as a result, like when it actually gets to pressing a little bit harder on this notion of the American prison um, is it far exceeds the bounds of actual prison spaces. When it presses a little bit harder on that notion, it feels in- entirely earned to me. So yeah, I was really taken by it.
3: I was thinking about the idea of the you know the, the match of a new formal treatment with a you know with like a touchy subject matter and actually the way Eric spoke about it reminded me of oh, Um and he's thinking about how you know that this kind of very structured sort of open-ended film that is about so much in a kind of low-key way it's about the intense relationship between a father and son and it's about how the, the world cup is seen in, in a city like Sao Paulo that, that we're, we're like no one in the city gets to actually see it and see that, you know, the, the soccer crazed city that has to watch basically the entire thing on TVs and doesn't have access to it. And it's also a you know, sort of city film. So yeah, it's somehow Eric, Eric speaking about the prison and 12 landscapes, which I basically would just echo what he's saying. Prison documentaries are, you know, they tend to, you know, they tend to go for the intense. And I think that, not just the, the decision to shoot. I mean, the decision, it's, it's a thought film that has intense moments and somehow like mixes that with this formalism um, that keeps it as an essay and, you know, not necessarily as a, what you would call like an activist film.
0: It still fulfills that role, though. And I mean, which mm-hmm. is incredible because it is like so measured and fair, and also, but there are always, there are still these moments, as you say, of like this real anger. I forget where they are in the Midwest, but the people who are- St. Louis. St. Louis, St. Louis, yeah. I mean, it
2: sa- it saves yeah. that punch. Yeah. It's, that's why I think it's really crucial yeah. that it saves that punch to the last twenty minutes or so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you you say okay, there's here's a film. Uh, that is going to be at the American prison system, and you're never going to visit a prison. You're like, oh, that's a great idea, mm-hmm. but then actually, it means something. It merely really yeah. means something that we never enter a prison, and that you don't need to enter a prison to convey, you know, the prison industrial complex, basically defining our culture in many ways. Yeah, did you I- talk about old football though? Because you went, Rachel went into that sure yeah is that right absolutely
0: <laughs> oh football because <laughs> because
2: that's another one where i feel like like amy Tobin was on here a couple of weeks ago talking about you know slow cinema and, mm. and feeling like a lot of films aren't earning their duration and i think oh football is one of these films where all that air and the lack of talking and the sharing of space is so crucial to communicating what that relationship is like these are people who yeah. don't really have much to talk to each other about, and and they figure out they get somewhere, but it has to be gotten there through that space. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's again, like I think it's a great match of of the formal solution to 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 emotionally what needs to be conveyed.
0: Or just masculinity. You were gonna no. <laughs> <laughs> you keep almost like I feel like you almost keep saying. Something.
2: Listen, Dennis programmed it, but he can't stand football. He's not gonna talk about. No, that no, no, no. I love football.
1: <laughs> Actually, you know, I was thinking as we were talking about football. Uh, I don't. I just didn't want to jump ahead. I Sorry. know you want to talk about Chantal Ackerman. Um, and it was funny because I, I don't know, Rachel, if you saw them both in Locarno too, but it was kind of interesting to see, you know, O Football and No Home Movie. Yeah. Kind of yeah. like, at, you know, within like a day or two of each other and like a film about the death of a parent. And I think there's something to be said about Ackerman's formal language, you know, and how Sergio Oxman kind of like uses it in No in Football. Um, but i know you're Absolutely. we can a, save that uh, that's you, a great we effort. can save that for the uh, no, you, you, Ackerman wait, portion can, of the podcast this <laughs> could be
0: the transition point this oh can be where just all and changes we'll,
1: and we're going to come back to okay <laughs> <laughs> and everything changes
0: yeah no i, I mean, mean, mean we can, let's then totally let's we can get into Ackerman now
1: where should we begin i don't even know where, with, where one mean, would begin with uh with with uh, with Ackerman. we well, be- should talk about so. that i mean
2: right so in new york starting this weekend Mm -hmm. there's There's, a lot of Ackerman yeah there's Ackermania basically (laughs) Ackermania
0: yeah (laughs) well yeah because um No Home Movie is getting a theatrical release and then there's also this big retrospective at BAM happening and then also Film Forum is having a documentary I believe about her as well as giving a run to um Jean Jean Dielman so um, and and
2: we're I mean, showing from the East all weekend. Oh, that's our contribution. Of yes. Yeah. It's
1: no, like th- a citywide celebration. Yeah. And yes. we hosted her uh, a memorial for her here a few weeks ago. So, yeah, everybody's honoring Ackerman in some way.
0: Yeah. And you see a program like this, not just, you know, specifically, Oat oh, football, but even something like, arguably, something like A Magical Substance Flows Through Me or, yeah. you know, just a lot of these films, like, I... <laughs> I always think of her very famous Facebook exchange where she says, where is my check? Everyone's influenced by me. Where is right. my check? And you can really see it in a program like this. And so I think it would be interesting to sort of like maybe talk about a little more about her long shadow and her influence yeah. on documentary and hybrid documentary.
1: I think you see her all over this, like program all over this the idea of this festival. And mm-hmm. I think you see her all over contemporary art cinema. I mean, if anything, I know that everybody's, you know, it's singing her praises now, but if anything, I think her influence is still possibly understated. Uh, it's it's enormous, which is one reason why it was somewhat, um, I think, you know, frustrating. In the immediate aftermath of her death, I thought the obituaries really undersold her, especially yeah. in the mainstream media. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least, you know, I don't know, in, in the more general interest publications. Th- it, was, it was just like, you know, feminist filmmaker, woman filmmaker, experimental filmmaker, and, and, and all those labels seem really really small when you yeah. think about what she did, which, you know, I don't even know. I mean, I mean, there's so many ways you can talk about what she did. And I think, for me, it's just about this, this the idea that you could make films that were both really formally rigorous and really personal at the same time. And that you could introduce, like, this kind of formal rigor into narrative cinema. And, and this this um, fluidity that you see in this program, and I think in a lot of the most exciting uh, art cinema today, um, you know, going back and forth between narrative and documentary, combining those modes, doing different kinds of narrative films, going back back and forth between the cinema and the gallery, which is something that we're also trying to explore with this program. I mean, Ackerman did all of it. She did all of it, you know, before a lot of people.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I talked to uh, Babette Mengelt, uh, her cinematographer, on several films through the early 80s last week. And, you know, I mean, She's she's an amazing woman as well, and and went from hello to talking f stops within like 15 seconds. Like she's a real DP. Like she, um, is is an amazing artist in that direction. But she, I I think matching up a little bit with what we've just been talking about with the previous several films, is is the degree to which the the formal uh, investment was had a real purpose to it, you know, and you're describing her sort of moving from one genre to the next, or one form to the next, one length to the next, one physical space to the next, and how that it's about being able to do that and and being curious about exploring all those realms, but it's also being unbound, making sure that you never felt unbound, that to be uh, that it was it was important within films, but also between films and between works. And that had a lot to do with her being a woman. You know, that the, the idea of, of, of being able to to make films and to be able to make art, that in order to be the feminist that you wanted to be, there there could not be the constraints that you're expected to behave within. And that's so much of, of what she did over her
3: career. Like a tribute to her, I read recently, there's a quote from her where she's, she says, you know, she's kind of talking about expanding to starting to make films for, for museums or going to Garrett Wells, and she said something like, you know, I, I treat every new project kind of as like as like a kid's game. If it goes wrong it's no big deal and if it and if it goes, you know, if it goes right, it's amazing. I think that reflects like a little bit of what Eric was saying about her position and what she you know, how she was able to make so many different kinds of works and and maybe also why you know why she doesn't have quite the quite the legacy she should, even despite you know this this huge month coming up well
2: because usually filmmakers get uh, you know a reputation and a relationship with the audience by hammering away at the same thing over and over again That's yeah
3: really, yeah totally.
0: uh, <laughs> a a topic or a theme that sort of recurs in Ackerman and doesn't actually get discussed very much, which is odd in in relation to her work is you know her faith and her relationship to being jewish and that you know um and it's totally a part of um dest and it's totally a part of this final film where she is asking these very difficult questions of her mother before her mother dies and seeing her mother get uncomfortable or maybe not want to get into that um sort of thing and it's uh you know i think that sort of um you know, again, it's personal, but it is, it does have this really large, I don't know, it's, it's touching on something larger than any of us. You know, it's, it's touching on something, the event of the 20th century, you know, the defining event. And it's like the way she handles it and she doesn't ever really come to closure with it. And that's, um,
2: it's always lacking in sentimentality Yeah, and it's always lacking in the idea of what the work is, as being a bomb
0: mm-hmm.
2: to, to, to whatever
0: trauma it's never that. Absolutely, but I think maybe if we could try and turn back to the art of the real program for a bit, uh, that sort of um, impetus or that filtering personal experience through something and and getting to sort of a larger, perhaps you know, historical or advocacy issue. I mean, you can see it in something like Oleg in the Rare Arts, or even you know, Poet on a Business Trip which is a totally goofy film but it has you know it carries a lot of weight um, in terms of like how that region of China is has been treated or in those people have been treated but
1: but we're on a business trip yeah I, I, I agree I think it's it's one of my favorites in the lineup um, and Zhuangqi I don't think is is very well known um, he I remember his first film, which is called um, "There's a Strong Wind in Beijing," which is, I think, one of the one of the best documentaries to emerge from China in like I think the last twenty years or so. It's also completely, as you say, goofy and and ridiculous. It's a kind of a conceptual film, and and basically a camera crew is going around Beijing asking people if the wind is strong, <laughs> and uh, it's kind of like this very you know, odd latter day version of like Jean Rouge's Chronicle of a Summer where they're going around Paris asking people the same question over and over again and here of course the question is absurd and like it's a film that kind of highlights this this aggressive um, nature sometimes that is built into this you know into this, the documentary project of confronting your subject but again an amazing portrait of of Beijing at the time and this film even though it's like was just, just premiered like a year ago a little over a year ago in Rotterdam was shot in uh, I think twelve years earlier, two thousand and yeah, yeah, two. Two thousand two, I think. Two thousand two, yeah. okay, so yeah. Um, and yeah, he only only edited now. So even it, it does function kind of as a as a as a time capsule of this particular place. The concept is, is 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 pretty absurd. It's just a poet who asks himself, what would it mean for a poet to go on a business trip? And he just goes, it's just a road movie through this very far western region of China, which as you said, Violet, is like you know the tensions there with the Uyghur um, sort of communities even more heightened now, um, yeah. and and to see it then, and the film is structured around these poems that he writes, um, sort of loosely based on his 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 travels, his encounters with people, yeah. and with uh, sex workers, or drinking, <laughs> and, <laughs> and drinking, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's a completely original wild film, and he's also going to be here, which is exciting.
3: Yeah, excellent. Um, and you know, with with Oleg, I think so much of the ode to to Duques like especially his editing um, of this film. I, you know, he, he there are so many you know musical portraits that go that go into some pretty basic territory. And this, like, just by you know his choices on how long to keep the shot going how long to stay with Oleg or until, you know, until until Oleg ships it off. And the sound and the sound design. It's just it's like really for me like sort of hard to get around portrait where you're just like, why is this so why is this so rich and so good and so beautiful? And all of the you know, there's so much about Oleg's life, like he's this, you know, crazy iconic character that is just in the background, you know, it's just there in this low key way that perhaps is also resonant of, you know, of of some of Ackerman's, you know, uh, documentary work.
2: Can I ask you and Rachel a question? Yeah. Um, because, and I've been thinking about this, and I've been thinking about this for three years, of the existence of this, is that this is not like the least crowded time of the year, um, in particular in New York, for, for documentary films. Mm-hmm. And yet, I think, you know, because there is documentary Fortnite, the new director's new films, there's documentaries, you know, First Look, which you initiated at the museum, uh, is in January. And yet, here we are, and most of these films are entirely new to me. A lot of these filmmakers are entirely new to me. I go to like 10 documentary film festivals around the, around the world every year, and yet these are still mostly new to me. Can you talk a little bit about like how there is space for these films and what the space is that you think they occupy? Uh, what
3: do you mean what the space is? That they like where they're where they're found where they you know like oh well, I mean you, you could talk about that but with, I guess
2: I mean yes. like the idea that there's there is an identity here there is a distinct identity and what you think uh-huh. of that as being because it's not just another documentary festival it's 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 something a bit different
3: I think part of the answer is in your question right about like I mean we are really trying to find stuff that's both from you know like, for instance this year we tried to find stuff from the art world we went to both we from to the Venice Biennial and saw stuff there but also um, I think trying to go to more international festivals that aren't focused so on documentary and finding things that that either are, are positioned as in crossover works so or that we you know that, or that we can find you know can find like enough enough bits of sort of the documentary pulse
1: in. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, certainly time on the calendar. Yeah, we do think about that. Like, you know, coming right after New Directors, which also does, you know, this year we showed like Zhao Liang's Behemoth and Lamas' El Eldorado, which are certainly films that could easily have lived in Art of the Real as well. Um, but I guess the short answer is we think that there's enough work <laughs> that isn't otherwise showcased. And we've, I mean, I'm just looking at the over the lineup now. We, we have really taken from a lot of different places you know the opening night films roberto's film minervini's film premiered at Cannes last year right. um, ben Rivers' film is a world premiere the cl- closing film japan amana's film just um... just premiered in in berlin um, so we have pulled from a lot of different festivals and i guess in terms of sensibility i don't know i think i think we share a lot with um... other documentary so certainly certainly some documentary festivals in uh in Europe, I think, um, you know, Feed Marseille, uh, and Doc Lisboa, and uh, CPH Docs. There's some, you know, there's a handful of films from each one of those festivals here, and, and I think, um, I find that there's just so much work that fits within this. We deliberately define this as a, you know, very broadly. I mean, like documentary, right. in the really the broadest possible sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. films that have some engagement with the real, you know, and, yeah. and I feel like we, yeah. we, we, you know, we haven't even really used, you haven't even used the word documentary in our, you know, it's not—it's not in the name of the festival, <laughs> right? Yeah, and so I think that I really that, yeah. does free us up to show a lot of work. And um, I think you know, I, I wouldn't even look at this list and say these these are the strongest documentary films of the year. I think these are some of the strongest films of right. the year. And I think yeah. it's just we're just at a point in time where I think the most interesting, or at least the most radical, most exciting, like adventurous films are doing something that relates to documentary in some way. That in, in some way, I think questioning or re-examining like, cinema's relationship with the real. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, some of these films are kind of fiction films. <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> the José Luis Gurion film is Academy of the Muses, yeah. for one. Um, but you know, I think it has certainly has its documentary aspects. I think it's it has to do with just this uh, this um, big tent. It's, a, it's sort of a big tent approach. But, and, and I think you're right. that It does somehow still result in, in uh, a festival that has a certain identity. I think all these films are doing something mm-hmm. interesting with form as it relates to content. And I think that's something we, we've, we were very much in agreement with, uh, with each other when we, when we thought of this idea. And I think there's a lot of great documentary programming around, um, but we thought maybe, I don't know if, if there's another showcase that, you know, for better or worse, I guess defines it as broadly as we want to mm-hmm. here.
0: Do you feel like that need to sort of be formally more formally ambitious comes from the fact that documentary is so thoroughly saturated into everyday life because or just that just the way in which, you know, video is everywhere or is it or do you see it as part of a an earlier tradition of something like Jean Rouch was doing or
1: yeah, I mean if you think of, you know, I think the greatest Early innovators of cinema were, like, in some ways, documentarians. If you, you yeah. b- before Rouche if you go to Vertov and Robert Flaherty and Sean mm-hmm. Epstein and people like that, were sort of en- at least engaging with documentary in, in 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 some way. Yeah, I think I think the the point about documentary being everywhere is certainly uh, an interesting one. I'm not sure there's an easy answer to that. Um, but one reason we decided. I don't know. Just Rachel, feel free to jump in at any, at any point. Um, we we thought we thought that there was a need for something like this is because even though there are notable exceptions, there, I think that's as I said, there's good good documentary programming around. For the most part, I do think that um, the the way we had come to define documentary certainly in American documentary circles, had resulted in a pretty standardized language right. for documentary film, and that is evident in documentary funding and <laughs> in documentary film programming. Yeah. So I feel like this, you know, that or, was-
0: And you can see that in the UK too, where yeah. they have their own- Yeah, story. definitely. It's
1: even yeah. worse in the UK. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I think a lot of it is television restrictions and uh, the needs of, of certain, which just shaped content a certain, a certain way.
3: Yeah, no, it was, it, I think, you know, Dennis answered is that yeah, it was more of a it was a reflection on how, you know, not not necessarily New York, but just how, you know, how a lot of documentary festivals at least certainly few years ago, like what was really at the forefront, the money side and the the marketing side and, and the like and just being issue based and you know, we were just looking to like really focus on, you know, like like films that were taking a kind of an art you know an artistic approach. And yeah, and that we felt that there was enough that, that didn't you know, we're not like super premiere focused. It's, it's a lot of what we're showing is has you know has shown has premiered at other festivals over the year and we have the benefit of being, of being able to feel like we can show like kind of the best of everything that we've seen from the year with a few with a few premieres in there to mm. to anchor it. Um, and so that's sort of a nice way to you know to go about that.
0: Documentary films that are actually films, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: that are, that dare to be
0: actually be, bother to be films. Emphasis on film, yeah. Yes, so. yes. Um,
3: yeah. And it's actually interesting, like, um, experimental film festivals of, of late have been including, we'll say, like, you know, Ann Arbor or Crossroads uh, in the U.S., that it, it the more traditionally would show, like, you know, like avant garde, you know, handmade cinema stuff is showing more and more. Of, the, of this kind of nonfiction film stuff as well so you have like international film festivals playing these films you have experimental film festivals beginning to like bring them on you have documentary film festivals sort of showing them often in like low-key ways but you know but often bringing them on too but then they, there's not like one place for them I think otherwise
2: and Rachel, you had said something I thought was really interesting in terms of where you're drawing films from, and it was the idea of emphasizing festivals that are not just documentary festivals that happen that happen to be showing strong films that were could be considered nonfiction or, or in some ways intersect with nonfiction. That's a really interesting idea, and, I, and, I, and it made me think of um, the, the Wavelengths program uh, in Toronto, being I think over time. There are more and more non-fiction, or could be considered non-fiction titles there, and in some ways, like it's a festival unto itself. It's just really great, interesting, formally, ex- ex- you know, explorational films, whether they're non-fiction or not. And 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 it seems like, I'm sure it's a strategy to some degree to what you're doing, but it also just seems like like you're you're following the most interesting films and you're putting them together in a program. You know,
0: so good job, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, someone who has really. It's it's funny because thinking of the sort of places that you're drawing from, these are all mostly European festivals, or almost exclu- exclusively European
1: festivals, right?
2: Um, well, your opening night is well, yeah, I can. Well, so.
1: I went to Korea. <laughs> the prison in twelve landscapes pres- premiered at, um, at, True True Falls. Falls. at True Falls. True yeah. Falls, yeah,
0: but it's but it's interesting. It's interesting to think of that uh, because you're just sort of like bringing a European aesthetic to the U.S. for this uh, series, and someone like Roberto Minervini, a European who is sort of filtering his experiences in Texas through, you know, sort of an art house. I I hesitate to call it a European art house because I I think it's more complicated than that, what he's doing. But uh, could you sort of explain the Texas trilogy and sort of what his body of work, how it relates to the festival and just how it stands on its own?
1: Well, Minervini is uh, somebody we've shown here um, at the Film Society like a few times now. I think we, we sh- uh, his previous film, Stop the Pounding Heart, was a new director's. Um, we gave it a run here as well, and we showed his earlier Texas Trilogy. And I think they're, uh, those are, I guess you would say, more hybrid films, and I think the other side is more... Documentary. I, if you were mm. going to, I don't know. All right. Well, there's. We can uh, argue with that, but but, but no, please. Give me no, I I think um he's became known for um making these um you know hybrid like stop the pounding heart being the best known one. Um, yeah. obviously, uh people playing versions of themselves in a fictionalized narrative, but um non-professional actors, um and yeah, as you point out, he's a real Italian. crises. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, he's Italian, but has lived uh in in Texas for some time, uh, and the other side is, you know, I guess a film that emerged from the people in Stop the Pounding Heart. There was some connection between uh, the subjects of that film and this film that led him to this um, part of Louisiana. I guess it's a two-part film. The first part is about a, uh, well, junkies, I guess you would say. Uh, Meth meth heads. uh, About a couple, about a relationship. And then the second part is about these um, ultra- Ultra something. Militia. Ultra yeah, Sort of Militia, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 Militia. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and prep, like kinda of prepper slash yeah. Yeah. I say that only because uh th- yeah, obviously I think there's um depending on how you want to classify documentary and fiction, um I, I just meant in the sense that there's like fewer like kind of you know this like not a, a constructed narrative mm-hmm. here necessarily, although obviously there's um staging then direction, I guess you would probably say.
3: Yeah, I mean the 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 opening shot, which I I think there's so much crazy, there's so much craziness that happens in the film that I think people forget about the opening shot by the end. But it's it's you know it's this amazing you know like where where Mark the kind of the primary character of the first the first part of the other side, uh, you know wakes up like from in fetal position from the side of the road naked and like just starts walking. <laughs> After that, it, it, it's what seems like, you know, kind of just like verite most of the time. But, um, but you start off with this like in, intense, seemingly staged, kind of devastatingly poetic shot.
2: I guess there's a couple of ways of, that I think about some of these issues around it. I mean, I, I, I think the movie's extraordinary. There's like a deep collaboration going on, you know, mm-hmm. that I think that there's an intimacy that's established and a sort of shared mission to some degree that clearly is behind what we're seeing. And, and and an access gained into people's lives it, but it seems that there's there's a and i say this not to call it out on something in fact it's quite the opposite I, I think there's a creative creative collaboration going on between subjects and filmmaker mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that are creating some of these tableaus and sort of getting the shots yeah. the extraordinary shots that only are available when a subject allows that intimacy yeah. and so whether it's a planned shot whether there's a discussion i'm going to get this type of shot or i want you to do this sort of thing for me um that involves performance to some degree Mm -hmm. um it comes from the the actual real world intimacy that leads to that
1: and i think that intimacy and that thrust between filmmaker and subject i think results in the i think really fascinating complexity and contradictions of the film i think that these you know these characters who you, I, I, I don't know, I, I can't really think off the top of my head of any other working filmmaker who, who would, um, you know, you, you, you see these people and you think they're a certain type. Yeah. Um, but I think as the film um, progresses, they become endlessly complicated. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the relationship that he's cultivated with these people
2: well i think it almost takes the it, the the notion of exploitation it sort of like almost takes that the shirt of exploitation and turns it inside out mm-hmm. because it sort of d- it goes d- so deep into what could be the danger zones of that and then finds a way of creating something that's really honest from that so these scenes that you that if you, we could describe them to you and you could say oh wow that there's there's a there's where's the agency where is you know um how conscious is could somebody you know is it, it, you know, how, how could somebody allow themselves to be shown that way but i think that there's such a degree of intimacy and collaboration that goes on with that that whether it's it's being revealed or whether it's performed mm-hmm. um it's something that's so deeply of itself and of that relationship and so it really it almost sort of anticipates that it's almost it's almost as if like a film like this anticipates the notion of exploitation in one of its in one of its uh, its ambitions anticipates that notion and then finds a way of making that irrelevant and i think that you you get there mm-hmm. in this film
1: yeah i actually haven't read that much about the film I, i'm not sure if it's been you know attacked or criticized on those grounds um, there's been a lot of
2: writing about it but i yeah. know that it's been divisively received in some ways
0: not enough people have seen it. Well, not <laughs> enough people have seen it, and I think
2: a lot of people have seen it at festivals and maybe held back on writing about it or yeah. are waiting for later, maybe they're waiting for the art of the real premiere. In
0: Waiter, later finger-wagging <laughs> to come. Yeah, well, and, and, and the subsequent run. Right?
1: Yes, we are opening the film here. Uh, it's like since we've played all of Roberto's films, I figured. Great. Just continue the well. streak. Great. <laughs> uh, I, I, th- I yeah. No, go ahead, no, I was going to say
2: I think I think some of the criticism that I've heard for it is about the structure, which is one of the things I love about it—the
1: two-part structure. Yeah, the idea yeah. that yeah.
2: like oh the film's really amazing and, and compelling, and then there is this extra thing at the end, and I don't know what that's about at all, and and mm-hmm. which I think is an impatience with the provocation of its structure as well as the provocation of 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 its two sets of subject matter. But I think that's what a lot of people from my here are struggling with is Mm -hmm. what that's doing there
1: yeah i don't know i guess anytime there's a two-part structure you're automatically thinking like what links them right and i think that is maybe part of what he's trying to get people to think about here uh and yeah i'm 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 not surprised that that would be you know it's it's that the exploitation thing would definitely i I also think the fact that the film is so beautifully shot is also going to be quite unnerving (laughs) for some people sure yeah
0: one that I really loved was Factory Complex. Again, I think another an advocacy film that's not like any other advocacy yeah. film that you've seen, and it's just like I thought of it because you're talking about the sort of this, you know, this strange. I haven't seen Minervini's film. Minerv, God damn it, Minervini. Yeah, I Minervini. I Minervini. I haven't seen the other side yet. <laughs> I haven't seen the other side yet. Um, but uh, I was going to say that it's focused. Like ninety-five percent of it is focused on. Female workers in Korea, specifically the emotional and physical labor and just horrible labor practices that go on there, and then there's all then there's this section that it opens in a part of um, in Siem Reap this temple in Siem Reap, Cambodia, and then it goes back to workers' struggles in Cambodia, and then it completely abandons it again and goes back to the Kore- these Korean workers and like the struggles they've got, and it's such a fast, it's so. I don't know why it does that, but it's still, I mean, there are very obvious parallels between these two different groups of workers. The majority of what the Korean uh, activists had achieved was in the 80s or 90s and and into the 2000s. And the Cambodians sort of struggle for, or basically a lot of the cheap labor, it seems, went to Cambodia instead of Korea. Now they're experiencing these struggles. And other than that, there's no connection and there's no explanation it just presents it and then goes back and it's it's fascinating
3: yeah that's true it's not like it actually wasn't I hadn't thought about the that comparison between the other side and, and factory complex but that definitely you yeah, know makes sense especially because it's like um, factory complex isn't isn't really trying to it's like that's not like doing this overhanded point about, you know, about these like global struggles, it does just seem like this kind of interlude. That's just kind of, that's just kind of there. And yeah, that is really interesting. Something that struck me about complex complexes, I saw it I guess Dennis and I both first saw it at the um at the Venice Biennial and the biennial this last year was like full of was full of like long, like, you know, feature length films that were just, you know, amid, amid thousands and thousands of, you know, of artworks, um, over tons of space. And it was kind of like comical how, you know, how many like feature length pieces there were that you were meant to, you know, either just, you know, just to check it and say that you say that you saw it or whatever, but people were always like, cl- like crowded around factory complex. Um, and people would, Talk about how they would, you know, they'd, they'd spent you know sixty minutes with it, um, you know, as much time as they would have spent with you know the other several hundred works of the arsenal. And I think that was really interesting. Just, um, just there's something about the way that um, the the sort of uh, the pace and uh, what's the word um, the um, kind of like flow of um, and like the mesmerization of the scenes, um, along with like it's really trenchant politics. Just super captivating or all this other
1: stuff. Yeah, I saw it in Venice too and it was, um, as Rachel said, you know, installed in this like unbearably hot room and which is really, I mean, it was, yeah, it's just a lot to ask to be watching like a feature length uh, piece in the context of It's asking you to partake art. of their suffering. But, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, we, I, I think it works very, very well. I, it works better in a cinema really from start to finish um, and that's why, it's one thing we were, you know, we wanted to really see what kind of work was being showcased at, at biennials and in galleries and try to bring some of that too. And as Rachel had mentioned, Venice was really interesting last year. We have two other pieces. Is it two or more, Rachel? Um, From we, Venice, yeah, we have Sea um, State and yeah. then 123.
3: And I think it's just those yeah, two. Yeah, we have uh, yeah. Charles
1: Lim's uh, Singapore Pavilion and um, Vincent Mason, Belgian Pavilion, um, the, which were two of the strongest things. That I saw, that we saw there, and and uh, you know, I think these are works that were, I think, um, they were installation works, but the but the the artists have created like single channel versions, and I think they work really nicely. And the I think the the shorts programs, I would call attention to. I think they're 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 really really strong.
0: Is there anything else that you die, dying to mention before we end, Eric?
2: No, I've, just, I've, just, I've just been sort of looking. I've been spending time looking through the list and. And, and 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 just sort of seeing certain things come through and, I, I, and there's, a, there's a, how many there's a how many archival based films are in it I see two at German least youth, uh, German uh, Youth
1: Jean-Gabriel Periot film about um, the Red Army mm-hmm. uh, what else do we have that's archival well the Tom
2: Anderson oh yeah well yeah. the
3: the Tom Anderson yeah. has is, is um,
1: definitely you could call that uh,
3: uh, Eric have
2: you seen that no I've not no and he's it's, coming in which is exciting
3: I mean you know yep it's uh it's really amazing and very you know very calm but 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 um but something new um very so like you know so like doing like this sort of early film history um but like somehow making Deleuze, you know like super accessible you know Deleuze like with a light touch um it's like a really it's like really enjoyable like lots of lots of great like great clips and just like really smart
1: it's like the best Dillos lecture ever uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: And then, if you don't like that, you can go to Academy of the Muses and get a more traditional lecture. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, definitely.
0: But
3: <laughs> um, I would say my other—I don't know if Violet—you saw this to, to write about it—roundabout um, in my head. Yeah. like, maybe maybe sleep sleeper coming in the list. Um, Hassan Zorani hasn't shown all that much here, um, and it's you know it's in an Algerian slaughterhouse, but um, this, the film is just like it's like brilliantly made it's like really funny um it's really tender um like it, 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 it looks gorgeous um it's one of my favorite films from the last year I'm really glad we got it
0: yeah no it definitely and also has sort of that weird switch that's not quite halfway through not quite three-fourths of the way through where it's sort of like it becomes this entirely different or it, it sort of takes on a different formal strategy but it still remains totally true to what it's trying to convey and I liked it quite a bit too taking what is, a, you know, sort of the traditional um, interview, the sort of talking head interview, and making that more fluidly a part of where these people are, the environments that they're in, and just environment itself, and how, you know, people move through spaces, and, what, and how those spaces change, how those people change. Again, films that are actually films, because they're exploring space in an interesting way. Films that
3: are films, that's what we're doing.
0: <laughs> you got a tagline out of this podcast. <laughs> you should be paying me. <laughs> um, well, we'll close now. But before we end, in the spirit of last ten films, we're going to go around and say one film that we saw recently that we liked. Rachel, would you like to go first?
3: Sure. Um, I'm going to mention the Illinois Parables by Dipper Stratman, which I saw at the True False Film Festival a couple weeks ago. It's just like it's the most like I hate to use this use this term for something by women, but it's like just so ballsy as an experimental film. The sound is in, in, intense. All of the different kinds of footage and techniques, um, and just she just puts together so many different strands of history and yeah, and film stylings and bits of shots and archival footage, archival prints, and puts it together in this way that's just like here it is, and uh, and it totally works. Uh, really blew me away.
1: I loved Everett's film too. Uh, I, I won't uh, give anything away, but you will have an opportunity to see it at some point <laughs> this year <laughs> <laughs> at the Film Society at Lincoln Center. Um, I'm going to pick a film that I watched, uh, rewatched on Sunday, Happy Hour by Ryosuke Hamaguchi. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the new director's new films. Uh, and I think it's notable <laughs> that I very happily rewatched this film because it is 317 minutes. Um, It's nearly five and a half hours. Um, It's a film by this Japanese filmmaker uh, who's made a few films, passion, intimacies. The films haven't traveled very much. This one was in Locarno. It won the Best Actress Prize. Its lead shared it. Um, A film that emerged out of a workshopping process with non-professionals, which partly accounts for its duration I think it's a lot. It's 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 a film about four friends. They're like you know thir- late thirties, forty-ish women. I was speechless again, like watching it the second time. And I think the things that this film does with duration are really fascinating. Um, you're used to long films being demanding or slow or you know like rigorous in a way that is not necessarily audience friendly. Um, this film really moves at an amazing clip, and then there are these like extended. Real time and somewhat documentary sequences dropped into the film that are like well over half an hour and completely, I think they're crucial to like the 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 dramatic and sort of like thematic meaning of the film. Um, I think it's an amazing film and it's really great to see, like 150 people watching it completely absorbed in the Walter Reed here on Sunday. So that's my choice. That's, that's thrilling.
2: Uh, I guess I'll say uh, in. Uh, in my life as a, 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 working at the Museum of the Moving Image, uh, I programmed a series of Jack Fisk films, the production designer Jack Fisk, who works with Terrence Malick and David Lynch and Paul Thomas Anderson and, and, and others uh, for See a, It a Big program. In, in putting that program together, we sort of definitely wanted to at least represent his directing career, he directed three features. Um, we uh, showed a film called Raggedy Man, uh, over the weekend, um which i hadn't seen since I saw it on like v h s in nineteen eighty three or something and I was too young to see it or understand it but it sh- it starred henry thomas from e t so that was the sort of draw when I was a young boy and rewatching it it's It's not a great movie it doesn't entirely work, but i can't quite get it out of my head because it's a it's it's mostly takes place in this look like, run down Home slash workspace for Sissy Spacek, who is Jack Fisk's wife and is the lead, the lead uh, his heroine in the in the film, and and she basically runs a, a sort of a, a phone, house, like I forget what it's called, but like a it, it was during the war, um, oh like a telephone exchange, a, a telephone exchange uh, home, and she mm-hmm. lives there with her two children, and she's divorced, um, and there are all these elements that are just so interesting that you don't see very often, like a a divorced woman raising two kids on her own. Um, having her sort of sexual her, her sexual exploits being questioned by the townspeople and Eric Roberts drifts in about a third of the way through the film and then takes up about the center of the film and I know Eric Roberts' career pretty well and know his filmography. I don't know that I've ever seen a more attractive person in film, which I don't think I would say that <laughs> expect to say that about Eric Roberts, but he's I can't stop thinking about Eric Roberts because he's gorgeous and he's like wearing a sailor's outfit. It's almost like a, a a parody. But like seeing him and Sissy Spacek in the frame together flirting with each other and desiring each other is just incredible. Wow. And and with Jack Fisk's Production design, which is you know obviously he built that home and and there's all this sort of spatial stuff that gets explored in terms of the objects in that space and um, it's amazing and then it becomes a genre film in the last 15 minutes and it's strange and I'm not don't think it works but um, yeah it's just I don't know the, the sort of American films in that moment that we think oh well Hollywood was becoming this other thing film like quirky not quirky but you know sort of unconventional you know uh, dramas that are uncategorizable you don't think they're happening in 1981 but this one was
0: well mine is sort of a um it has almost documentary aspects at points because it's remarkably s- sloppily made um <laughs> but it's still totally charming it's a uh, i recently rewatched elaine may's the heartbreak kid which Oh, my God. I love this film. Uh, it's, you know, if I could ever say anything as funny as Jeannie Berlin does, you know, I would cut off one of my fingers, all of my fingers. I don't care. Someone said this to me. It's sort of like a, her response to The Graduate, but better. And I, it's true. I think that's the perfect way to summarize it, where at the end, you know, Charles Grodin, you know, he's going around. He can't even keep the attention of children and everything around him is much nicer than his first wedding, but he's still the same person and he has to live with that. (laughs) Nevertheless, there's a lot of fun stuff that happens in between the heartbreak. So I highly recommend it if you have not seen it. But anyway, thank you all for coming.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcommentcom slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.